people make a mistake when they think that Hinduism essentially equals caste, right? When they do that, um, it, it essentially negates a whole lot of Hindu philosophy, Hindu teaching, and the scripture itself. You know, a lot of what's in the Shruti is about the divinity of all beings. And uh, there, there are even passages which refute the concept of birth status, right? So uh, the very famous story in the Chandogya Upanishad of Satyakama, whose uh, mother is a servant. Uh, he doesn't even know who his father is, but he becomes a Brahmin because he's very wise and he's very learned and, and he advances uh, knowledge. And so uh, this is uh, a very, very complicated system. And, and I'm... Uh, I think our educational system in the U.S. has done a disservice to people in India, but also to to our own students by portraying this very simplistic kind of, of system. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I speak with Jeffrey Long, professor of religion and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College. We discuss stereotypes and misunderstandings about Hinduism, his latest book, Hinduism in America, and the Hindu themes in Star Wars, including the new Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian. Hope you enjoy it. First of all, thanks for doing this. Um, and let's just jump right into it. Your latest book is titled Hinduism in America, Convergence of Worlds. What inspired you to write this? And could you describe the convergence that you're seeing? Okay, so this book, uh, thank you for asking about this. So this book is the product of uh, almost, I would say, two and a half decades of my experience of uh, being both a participant in and an observer of the Hindu American communities. And what really inspired this for me uh, was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'm a Hindu practitioner. Uh, I'm a member of the Vedanta Society. I'm in the tradition of Sri Ramakrishna. And so one thing that has interested me a lot through the years is the stories of people like myself uh, and like you who did not necessarily grow up in a Hindu tradition but who are drawn to it and who for a variety of reasons find it to be a source of inspiration, a source of meaning. And uh, you know, we, we become part of traditions like the Vedanta Society, ISKCON, Self-Realization Fellowship, Siddha Yoga. You know, there's the whole range of various traditions that have come to America and have been adopted by, um, by a growing number of, of Americans. At the same time, uh, you have the Hindu community coming in from mostly India, uh, but of course other countries as well, uh, but mainly from India and mainly people who are either of Indian descent or, you know, their ancestors came from India. And my wife is from India. And so we are participants in our local Hindu temple, for example, uh, which it was, you know, overwhelmingly the people there are from India or maybe their parents are from India. And so you have these two communities, which are in many ways very distinct. Uh, what makes someone become a seeker and look for answers to life's big questions in a culture different from the one they, they grew up in? That's in many ways a different a person in a very different situation from someone who's come uh, from another country and they want to preserve their culture, preserve their traditions and pass them on to their children. And increasingly, what I found is that the boundary between these two sort of initially very distinct communities is breaking down. Uh, you have Swamis who are, let's say, white, you know, European-American uh, who have been Swamis since, you know, maybe the 60s or 50s, uh, teaching young children who are, you know, from India or whose parents are from India about Hinduism, right? So, I mean, it's the, the, the question of who's an insider, who's an outsider is, is changed a lot. Uh, it's not a, a simple matter of, uh, oh, you're from India, you're Hindu, or, you know, you're an outsider. And uh, I was given the opportunity to write this book uh, because uh, actually a friend of mine contacted me from Bloomsbury and said, I think you'd be the perfect person to write this book. So I, it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to pull together things that I had been researching, just really not so much as a professional scholar of religion. I mostly write about philosophy. But just the observations I've made and the notes I've taken and conversations I've had, like I said, going basically back throughout my adult life. So I, I did some additional research into areas I didn't know as well, especially some of the historical material. 
and put it together into this book, which uh, ostensibly is, is a textbook. I mean, it has things like study questions at the end and, you know, of each chapter and guides to, you know, further reading. But uh, it's really uh, meant to be the kind of book that anyone who's interested in this topic can uh, explore. So how did you first become aware or get attracted to Hinduism? That's a long story. That goes back to my childhood, in fact. Uh, I grew up Catholic and in a small town in the Midwest, in Missouri. And my father uh, was in a really terrible accident when I was young. I was 10, about to turn 11. And then he, he passed away when I was 12. Uh, and this was all connected with this, this really terrible accident that he had. It changed all of our lives. My family, I mean, we were, you know, our lives were turned upside down by this. And so it really prompted me to think very deeply about the big questions of life. Why do we suffer? What's the purpose of all this? What happens after we die? Is, is there anything after we die? What's, you know, what's the meaning of it all? And uh, there were a lot of answers that I found in the tradition of my upbringing that were very comforting and very helpful. But there was a point beyond which I, I was not entirely satisfied with what I was being told, especially when it came to the question of the afterlife, uh, this sort of traditional model of heaven and hell that you get from uh, Christianity. And uh, it just struck me as odd that the events of and the choices of one little infinitesimal lifetime in the vast expanse of cosmic time would determine your fate for forever, for all eternity. And so even before I knew about Hinduism uh, or any other you know, traditions that teach the idea of rebirth, I was sort of inclined to think of well, the next life, you know, if the universe is fair, uh, it should be something kind of like this life, you know, as of a mix of good and bad, because, you know, most people, the people I met, uh, I didn't find any of them were so saintly that they were ready for, you know, eternal paradise. And I really didn't know anyone that, that I thought was so evil, they deserve to be damned eternally, you know. Uh, and even if you think about the, the great villains of history, someone like Hitler, you know, I mean, maybe he should suffer for a few billion years, but a few billion years is still not infinity, right? That there would come a time when the soul would learn its lessons and, and uh, move on to something better. And so I was sort of drawn to this idea of, of rebirth. And then a couple of things uh, sort of came to me uh, that uh, uh, through popular culture, uh, one was uh, I saw the movie Gandhi when it came out and uh, the, the biographical film about Gandhi and I was 13 when that came out. So it was about a year after my dad passed away. So I was at the height of this kind of questioning. And that movie really grabbed me. I mean, that was the first time I really had looked at anything very deeply that was connected with India or with Hinduism. But I found so much of it so profound. Many of the things that he said and his use of nonviolence. And it just it really was something that, that touched me deeply. And around the same period, I was uh, sort of awakening to the Beatles and I was uh, really getting interested in their music. I grew up in the 80s. I was not, you know, a, a child of the 60s. I was born in the 60s, but I didn't grow up you know, with the 60s. But growing up in my parents' home in the 70s, I, I heard a lot of music from that period. And of course, a lot of the 70s singer songwriters and so on that my father was into. And I was really getting into the Beatles and I started learning more about them. And George Harrison's spiritual journey really intrigued me. And the more I read, the more I learned, uh, I heard the Bhagavad Gita being mentioned, uh, both by Gandhi and also George Harrison. So these two figures, uh, very different figures in many ways, but, but they're both referring to the same ancient text. So I started thinking, I want to I find this book, the Bhagavad Gita. I want to read it. It seems to be very important. And uh, it wasn't readily available I mean, in the small town that I grew up in. But uh, one day, uh, just sort of a seeming chance, but for me, it was a very decisive moment. Uh, I was at a, a sale in a church parking lot. It was a, the Methodist church. They were having a, a sale that they had every year. And people from all over the community went to, you know, sell old stuff and buy stuff. So my grandmother went and she sold arts and crafts and things that she made. And I went to help her. And then I also found that these sales were often a good place to get comic books and old sci-fi novels and the sort of thing that I enjoyed. And so I wasn't even really thinking about the Bhagavad Gita at that moment. But as I was sort of uh, walking around the sale, I came to this table where there was, there was a bunch of books in a pile. So I thought, oh, this looks promising. And right on top, there was the Bhagavad Gita. It was almost as if it had been placed there for me to find. What, what edition was it? Do you remember? It was actually, it was, it was the, it was the uh, ISKCON, uh, the, the version by Prabhupada, the Bhagavad Gita as it is. And it was a hardcover 
and uh, the paper cover was still on the hard covers. It was a beautiful picture of of Lord Krishna, you know, driving the charioteer or driving the chariot, uh, acting as the charioteer. I opened it, and you know, there were these beautiful illustrations that that the ISKCON books have, and there was this picture of a man who had died, and he's surrounded by his mourning family, his grieving family, and. At a distance, there's a wise sage who's sort of looking at them all compassionately, but also dispassionately. And he's seeing God in all of them. There's this sort of little picture of Lord Krishna over the front of everyone's heart, right? And uh, it's there, there was a caption at the bottom. It said, the wise lament neither the living nor the dead. And I was very struck by those words. It just, I mean, I was in the throes of this sort of grieving process with everything that happened to my dad. And so it, it, it indicated a page number. So I turned to that and it was the second chapter, uh, the 11th verse. And it's where Lord Krishna starts explaining to Arjuna about rebirth, how the, the way the, the soul changes bodies is like the way we change clothes and uh, the soul never dies. And it was basically the entire thought process I had been sort of developing on my own, all right there you know, in print. And I sometimes tell people, I try to capture what this moment was like, because it was a very weird moment, a very pivotal moment in my life. I've lately been saying that it's like being an extraterrestrial who was raised by humans and then finding an artifact from your home planet. It just made sense. I connected with it in a way that I'd never connected with anything. And uh, so... um, I, I got the book and they sold it for a quarter. So it's the best, best, best quarter I ever spent. And uh, this is in 1983. So uh, I don't know if the value of a quarter has changed that much, but yeah. Uh, and uh, then I just took off from there. Like uh, uh, I always loved books and that was something my mother really inculcated. And so she would get books for me pretty regularly. And, and uh, whenever we went to a bookstore, you know, we went over into one of the, one of the larger towns that had a bookstore uh, I started gravitating not as much to the science fiction, but more to the religion and philosophy. And I, I read Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy, Houston Smith's Religions of Man, um, Pramahansa Yogananda's uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, Swami Rama's Living with the Himalayan Masters. I had started accumulating all these books and translations of the Gita, the Upanishads, Yoga Sutra, um, things on Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. And this all really just uh, was life-giving to me. It, it, it made sense. And it was a philosophy I found I agreed with. So that's when I really became, I'd say, very aware of Hinduism. So it would be from, from about the age of 12, 13, and then really kind of plunged into it from my teenage years onward. Sure. So what was it about Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda that that attracted you more than others. So many non-Indians in the United States, at least that come to Hinduism, come in through ISKCON. And obviously the first copy of the Gita you came, came across was Prabhupada's. Uh, What was it about Sri Ramakrishna? So the thing about Sri Ramakrishna that really grabbed me and uh, a couple of things, and, and, and this is still the case for me today. One is the breadth, the universality of his vision. He talks about the divinity in all of us as something that can be realized through many traditions and many paths. I was growing up Catholic in Missouri uh, in an area that was heavily evangelical Protestant. And I had conversations with other kids and sometimes even with adults where uh, that more than once I was told I was going to hell because I was Catholic and that that was the wrong kind of Christianity. And much less, you know, any kind of other religion, you know, uh, like, you know, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and they would, they just, they thought all those people were going to hell. And I thought, you know, what a narrow vision of reality, right? If God is infinite, if God is the source of this whole universe, you know, think of the vastness of creation, the galaxies, just the expansiveness of all of it. And yet, you know, billions of human beings would be condemned forever because they didn't belong to the right church or the right religion. And with Ramakrishna, there is the complete universality and acceptance, universal acceptance. The other thing I loved about Sri Ramakrishna is the emphasis on direct experience. And for him, uh, the scriptures of, of the religions, the teachings of masters, that's all good. That's all a guide that helps you on your path. It's essential on your path. But finally, you have to realize it all for yourself. It's not ultimately about 
believing in something as if that's going to be some kind of ticket to ticket to heaven, right? Uh, it's about having the experience yourself and, and seeing God for yourself and, and really knowing that. And so I really love that about those two things about Ramakrishna. Swami Vivekananda, of course, has all of that, which he, he received from his teacher. And the thing I also really have uh, grown to appreciate a lot about Swami Vivekananda is his courage, because he came to America in 1893 and told a bunch of white Christians they were his brothers and sisters, uh, sisters and brothers of America, right? And uh, spoke on an equal level uh, with just no trace of fear. And uh, this was at a time when, you know, racism, I mean, we're still dealing with racism now. And in those days, the Civil War and slavery were still a a recent living memory. And I, I kind of do little mind experiments with myself. So like, 1893 when he came. So that was less than 30 years from the Civil War. Well, what was I doing 30 years ago? Well, I was in college. Well, that doesn't seem that long ago to me, right? So this, you know, he comes into this highly charged environment and at a time when India is still subjugated, right? It's still under European domination. And he just strides in, you know, as as they as they say, like a lion, right? He just, you know, he came came to the stage of the Parliament of World Religions and spoke about love and universal acceptance and many paths leading to God, like many rivers going to the ocean. And uh, I just I find that courage really uh, inspiring. I, I wish I had even you know one percent of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back a little bit, you you mentioned the film Gandhi. Um, it occurred to me, how do you think? Gandhi would react today to some of the civil unrest. And do you think his, his interpretation of ahimsa and nonviolent civil disobedience, what's the relevance of that today? Oh, I think it's very relevant today. Uh, I think first of all, and he would, he would be standing very strong against two things, the environmental degradation. He was an environmentalist before that term, I think, was probably even coined, certainly before it was popular. And the uh, racism, I mean, this is something that he would be uh, in the front lines, I think, to want to eradicate. But Gandhi is always a challenging figure because his interpretation of Ahinsa is rooted in the Vedantic realization that divinity is within all of us. And so even the worst person, the person who is oppressing you and violent and threatening you and doing terrible things, there is divinity even within that person. So Gandhi saw us all as having an obligation to to try to reach out to that, right? To not turn people away, uh, to accept everyone. And that is very challenging. And when it comes to specific decisions Gandhi made uh, in his lifetime, I know that he has a lot of critics. And... uh, I wouldn't necessarily count myself among his critics, uh, but I would say that they sometimes have a point, right? That uh, there, there are times when, you know, his way of thinking, uh, it's, it can be very difficult to conceive of how that can be practical. And uh, he even said that uh, there were times when, I mean, he, he believed in having a police force, for example. He believed uh, independent India should have a military. So uh, a lot of people will take him for, such a radical pacifist that you know, there would be no situation whatsoever in he in which he would ever advocate you know protecting oneself or protecting others through through physical force. Um, that's not really entirely true of him. Uh, in fact, a very famous line of his: he once said, uh, "If you have to choose between cowardice and violence, you should choose violence." Right? That that what he meant by nonviolence was this uh, taking of a stand, knowing you might be killed in the in the process. Uh, the hard part, of course, is when it comes to someone else's life, right? The, um, you know, as a believer in nonviolence, uh, people will sometimes pose questions, you know, so what would you do if someone was attacking you? Well, it's, it's hard to say you would let them kill you, um, but, you know, let's say that you give that response. But then when someone says, what if that person was threatening your family or some other person who was, you know, a, a child, you know, that's much harder. Right? Then, then you really can see scope for some kind of physical intervention. You know, uh, maybe you learn martial arts and, you know, pin them down to the ground and then teach them about a hint. So, you know, something like, like that would be sort of the ideal situation. But I think as an ideal, I think what Gandhi does, like even whether everyone agrees with everything he says all of the time or not. The challenge for Gandhi, I think, is to get us to think more creatively about 
violence and problem solving. And I know in our country, especially for many people, the first reaction, if they think of someone attacking their person or their property or someone, well, you get a gun, right? You know, I mean, you sort of go right through for the most lethal option right away. But there are all kinds of creative ways to nonviolently diffuse situations and solve problems. And I, for me, the, the, what Gandhi offers to the world is the, the suggestion that we at least think about other ways of doing things. And uh, I know there was, a, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I, I just seem to, it's embedded in my mind. But I think someone, I remember asking Gandhi at some point, you know, what would you do if someone was robbing your home, let's say? And I, I, again, I don't know if this is 100% correct, but what I seem to remember is that he said, you know, you would, you would try to stop that person, you know, by some non-lethal means. And he said, but, he said, let us think about why are we in a society where someone feels they have to break into someone's home to rob them? Why is that person poor? Uh, why do they need to do that? And so I think that's the kind of challenge Gandhi offers us to sort of, he really understood that violence was a system. And in the time of British colonialism, if there were people participating in British colonialism who might themselves not have personally agreed with it, but for whatever variety of reasons, they were in a position where they were sort of compelled to uphold that system. And he invited them to say, well, why don't you not do that? Right. So what, you know, what happens when we just don't cooperate or don't comply with many of the things that we just assume we have to go along with. So he was a real champion of those kinds of methods. And uh, so I'm, I, I think Gandhi's very, very relevant uh, to our contemporary world. It's, um, it's funny. I did not anticipate talking about the film Gandhi, which I've seen many times. It was, uh, I am not old enough to have seen it in the theater, um, but I, you know, it, I've subsequently seen it. There's, there are two quotes in it that, um, that, that have stuck with me that I, I find cause to bring up. I don't know if it was made up for the film or whatever, but Margaret Bork White is talking to Gandhi, the photographer played by Candace Bergen. And I believe if I'm remembering it right, she asks, do you really think nonviolence could work against somebody like Hitler. And today, what I think is I ask myself, how does nonviolence work against something, a group of people like ISIS, who, right. who, who are just, who will not, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience to me against a, a foe like that seems futile. Yeah. You know? And I, I, I wonder what Gandhi would, would say to something like that. Cause that's even, I don't know. There were, uh, now in the film, I think after she asked that question, he says, uh, not without, uh, loss and great pain. Yeah. But then he says, but is there no loss or great pain in any case, right. In a, in a conflict like that. I also know that uh, he, he did, uh, suggest at some point that there might have been nonviolent methods that could have been used to probably not overthrow the Nazis, but make it more difficult for them to carry out what they did, right? Uh, there were, you know, uh, there were a lot of what the Nazis did, especially to the Jewish community, was dependent upon informers, right? It was dependent upon people saying, ah, here are the Jewish people. What if everyone refused? What if everyone said, oh, no, we don't have any Jewish people here, right? I mean, things like that. I, I think he, he was talking about, you know, ways to mitigate it. I also know that he wrote a letter to Hitler, and this is controversial, and it's interesting because he addressed it, my dear brother, uh, when he was writing to Hitler and he was trying to sort of persuade him to give up his evil ways. It didn't work, obviously. I, I think that when we're looking at movements like the Nazis, and I think ISIS might even be a better example because it's contemporary, you have movements and ideologies in which some people, not all members necessarily, but some become so twisted in that ideology, they become incapable of even perceiving other human beings as fellow human beings. And so nothing that you could do, you know, if you, if you, if you tried to persuade them, they would just, you know, they might just mow you down. Right. And so I think, uh, and this is why tragically, I think as long as we're caught up in this realm of sansara, uh, there are probably cases where just violence is unavoidable in terms of, you know, preventing a greater evil. 
And uh, thinking now not of Gandhi, but of, of a very similar figure uh, who many people put in the same category and who I actually had the privilege of meeting a few years ago, the Dalai Lama, who is also committed to nonviolence. Uh, when Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, I recall that someone said something to the Dalai Lama about it. And I don't know what they said, but the, the, their assumption was that he would disapprove. And the Dalai Lama says, oh, some people are so destructive that this is the really the you know, sadly, tragically, the only way. Uh, and so I, I don't think he disapproved uh, of, of bin Laden being uh, removed from the scene with, with violence. We always have to be extremely careful about it, I think, because there's what they call the slippery slope, right? The, uh, once we're willing to justify violence in some very, you know, we'll say very, very isolated cases, which is basically what I'm arguing for, we have to be careful to then not allow that very isolated space to expand um, because, you know, something as, as horrifying as the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was justified by a calculus of how many lives can we save and prevent the war and so on. And that was just a horrific, horrific cry. I've been to the Hiroshima Museum more than once. My wife teaches Japanese and we take a group of students to Japan uh, most summers for three weeks. And we go to the Peace Museum and uh, you see uh, like a child's tricycle, you know, that was just melted in that bomb. You know, that child didn't do anything to to deserve that, right? You have the, the lunchbox of some, you know, a, a child going to, to school and it's all melted and they have the remains of it. And uh, so we, we have to, if we have to use violence, it has to be very, very judicious in my opinion. And there's a verse I really like from the Tao Te Ching about this. It says, uh, uh, the Tao Te Ching is also a very pacifist text, but it says, if you must go to war, go to war, but go as though you were going to a funeral. So none of this, rah, rah, we're going to kick their butts, right? Oh, we're the best. Uh, none of the glorification of war, right? So seeing it as a very solemn and tragic kind of duty, right? Uh, which I think is is what Krishna is saying to Arjuna also in, in the Gita. It's not, you know, you're not going to decapitate Duryodhana and, and you know, dance on his body, right? I mean, this is his very sad, solemn, but nevertheless necessary duty that Arjuna has to go in, into this, this battle. So I, I think uh, I would, uh, I think that's in the spirit of, of Gandhi and really kind of in the spirit of, of, of Hindu Dharma uh, that, you know, we're in this imperfect world where there are occasions when it, it becomes necessary to inflict some suffering to prevent some greater suffering but that we should never become comfortable with that, right? That, that we are here to realize something far more high, more profound, uh, our deep interconnection and ultimate unity with, with all beings. And so, yeah, we, we should see, you know, having to, you know, if, if, if we're in the unfortunate situation where you have to actually would end the life of another being, you know, to think of it as if you're cutting off your own arm, right? To maybe stop the spread of gangrene or something like that, to, rather than glorying in it, right? We're uh, the, the kind of hateful rhetoric that usually goes with war. Um, my father used to talk about this. He was in Vietnam and he thankfully never had to kill anyone, but uh, the way they were trained, they were like, they were basically, uh, they had all kinds of uh, racial, you know, sort of racist epithets for the Vietnamese. And these, they were actually trained to speak that way. They were said, call them this, call them that, because it actually helped dehumanize. The yeah, it, it helps to otherize them, see them not as, not as people who had children or anything, had families, et cetera. Let's go towards academia. You know, within the Hindu American community, at least the vocal part that HAF seems to interact with often, the impression is that contemporary academia, the study of religion in the United States and maybe in the West, more broadly, is antagonistic towards Hinduism, or at least gets a tradition wrong more than it gets it right. You know, in your work, do you see Hindu traditions getting portrayed fairly accurately? It depends on who I'm reading, right? It depends on the scholars. And uh, one of the unfortunate tendencies in our era of history, and I find this not just with, say, Hindu practitioners and academics, I find it with all kinds of topics, there's a tendency to polarize and then characterize another group as entirely one way or the other. And I know I had a, I had a Hindu friend on Facebook who was saying something about, oh, these academics and the way they talk about Hinduism. And I, uh, 
I posted a, a comment and I said, is that what you think of, of me and what I do? So, oh, no, no, Dr. Long, you're different, right? And well, I'm not that different. Uh, I, I am part of the academy and there are actually quite a few of us, quite a few who are practitioners also. I'm a little more open about that than uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of the more senior scholars uh, came of age at a time when sort of talking about one's own religious affiliation was uh, seen as making you somehow less objective, though Christian theologians do it all the time. And I, I came from a Catholic background and, and I went to a Catholic university for my undergraduate. So I thought, well, if, if uh, you know, if Father Frank Clooney can get up and talk about uh, things from a very clearly, you know, Catholic perspective, why can't I talk about things from a Vedantic perspective? So I've been very open about it. But uh, not always necessarily in my work, though, because sometimes it's just not relevant, right? Someone, and I do a lot of work on, on Jainism, for example, someone who wants to know about Jain philosophy might not really care about my philosophy. They want to know what, what the Jains think, right? Same with Hinduism. Right? I'm, I'm, if I'm presenting on a, a Hindu text, the Hindu tradition, I, I talk about that, not about me. I'm not relevant there. But um, there were quite a few of us who want to do justice to the traditions to, to be not only accurate, but sympathetic, because there are already so many pervasive stereotypes uh, about Hinduism, a lot of negative stereotypes, exoticism, and so on, that uh, we have that sort of heavy lifting to do to just get people to think of this as a great tradition on par with other traditions they might have more respect for. So we have that kind of uh, you know gap to, to bridge. And there are a lot of scholars who I think just don't feel that obligation. Uh, they don't necessarily identify with the tradition. They might even be very critical of the tradition in some respects. And of course, you can be a practitioner and be self-critical. You can say, yeah, we, we shouldn't do this or you know, we should do this better. But uh, you have there are people whose basic worldview and ideology is, is antagonistic not only to Hindu traditions, but to religion in general and spirituality in general. And they may see their job as basically to deconstruct religion and show the world how this sort of, um, uh, what's the term, this uh, uh, mystification occurs, which allows power structures to advance unchecked and, and so on, you know, the opiate of the masses and, and that whole perspective. So you have scholars who take that perspective and so then that is going to shape uh, their writing. And then there's another phenomenon too, which I think is uh, just a repetition, right? Uh, a lot of us, uh, I think, were trained and read materials that were from an earlier era, um, you know, a colonial era and a uh, time when there was sort of an assumption of Western superiority. And sometimes we just unconsciously pick up, I, I, they're, they're memes, basically. We sort of pick up uh, ways of speaking, um, turns of phrase and so on, that once you become a practitioner or just attuned to the sensibilities of the practitioner community, you realize, oh my gosh, that sounds horrible, right? That, that sounds really offensive. That's, that's not how we should talk about these things. And until that sort of sensitization happens, people don't know. And you have people who work with ancient texts and maybe have very little or, or no interaction with, with living Hindus. So uh, it's no wonder that their scholarship doesn't resemble what people of, of today believe in practice because, well, they're talking about something else and they're not really interested in that. So you have this very – the academy basically is a massive ongoing conversation with many participants and so you have people who want to represent Hinduism well, and we see ourselves as, uh, as having kind of an advocacy role, really, just, just because of the disproportionality, right? because of the exoticism and so on, which is there around Hinduism. Um, and I'm sure there are scholars of Islam who feel the same way about Islam because, you know, all you hear about is terrorist attacks and people don't want to hear about, you know, uh, Shia uh devotional singing or something, you know, that, that you might be very inspired by. So, you know, we're always, you know, wanting to promote the traditions in the best possible light. And uh, yeah, you have a lot of people who either aren't interested in that or who are actually hostile to that. So the Academy is a big, it's a mixed bag. And uh, I would like to see more of a the kind of cooperation between the community and those in the Academy who are, you know, supportive how do you think the community can actually do that? How, how do you think the community can be supportive? Because 
what I, what I say a lot of the time is if a scholar gets something wrong, there is vocal, vocal, sometimes I think counterproductive backlash, at least in the tone, even if the person got something really wrong, the tone is very, if I was a person receiving it, I'm going to get very defensive yes. because it's, it's very, it's, it's, it can get ugly sometimes. Oh, I mean, yeah. What do you think the community can do to better better that situation? Several things. Uh, one is, uh, well, in terms of the sort of negative backlash, like you see on social media sometimes, I mean, it's hard to sort of police that, but uh, I think it's good if community leaders will say, uh, yes, we want to oppose incorrect representations, uh, but we also need to do it smartly. And yes, you might feel deeply hurt, but getting really emotional and calling someone bad names or, you know, threatening to come and burn down their house or something, that's not, count, that's not productive. In fact, it makes the tradition look even worse, right? Because if someone is already Hindu phobic and they read something that someone wrote really angrily in response to something a scholar wrote or did or said, and that anger may be justified, but if what they write is offensive and crazy and over the top, it's just going to reinforce the view, the negative view that, that the Hindu phobic person already has. Oh, look at how these people talk. Right. And so, uh, to realize that, you know, if, um, if you really want to represent the tradition, well, you have to know that you're, you're kind of on all of the time, right? We, we have to, in a sense, do PR for Hinduism every moment of our lives, because the whole tradition will be judged by those of us who identify with it or, you know, speak about it uh, frequently in public, like, like I do, uh, that, uh, you know, we, we really need to be dharmic in our speech and what we write. And that, you know, the ideal in all the Dharma traditions is uh, to practice truthfulness and to practice our highest virtues in thought, word, and action. So to really, you know, and this I think is where Gandhi comes in. And people have this mistaken view that, you know, that he was passive, that that nonviolence means or ahimsa means, oh, you just lay down and let people get away with nonsense. No, it means standing up uh, to that nonsense, but not generating nonsense oneself as a result, and you know, not not being so uh, over the top. Now that has to do with how we conduct ourselves in, in our in our discourse. Um, I think other things the Hindu community can do. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who say and might even be expecting me to say, oh, uh, "Donate money to a chair in Hindu studies that will you know promote and advance these ideals." Uh, I support that, but I want to ask something even more from the Hindu community. I don't want your money. I want your children. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, encourage young Hindus to go into fields like philosophy and religious studies and anthropology. So they, as, as insiders, will learn the theoretical tools and will produce really good scholarship that is top-rate scholarship and reflects the sensibility of their community as practitioners. And, uh, you know, everyone doesn't, and now of course this is a stereotype, but everyone doesn't have to be a doctor or an engineer. Right? They, they, and, and I know Hindu families want their, their children to prosper and they want them to go into fields where they can earn a lot of money. Uh, you don't earn a lot of money in the academy. Um, but if you get tenure, you have job security. And you know, as long as you're at a stable institution, that's not going to go under. Uh, and you, uh, you're, it's Seva, you're, you're giving, you know, you're using your career and your intellect to do something positive for the community is I, I think one of the issues that we've had in the community when, when people say, oh, we don't like how these people write about us, uh, then the counter challenge is, well, then why don't you write something? Right. Uh, and then to do that and to have it be accepted, you know, you have to go through the whole process, right? You know, get a degree and, and so on. And uh, there might be headwinds, right? There, there are institutions where it will be very difficult to articulate a Hindu perspective, but there are a growing number of places where it's possible to study these traditions with people who are friendly uh, to them and, and uh, or practitioners themselves. Um, thinking about like my friend Rita Sharma at uh, Graduate Theological Union. She has this wonderful center of Dharma studies, and uh, it's all about uh, cultivating perspectives that are academically rigorous and simultaneously reflect 
the communities, uh, Hindu communities, Jain, Buddhist, and so on. And uh, so, uh, and she's just one example. And so um, when my friend said on Facebook, oh, Dr. Long, you're different. And well, it was a compliment, but I, I'm not alone. Uh, there are quite a few of us, I would say a pretty big block in the academy who are friendly to uh, the traditions. Our scholarship doesn't always get as much attention. Uh, the things that get attention are the, you know, someone writing about, you know, the sex life of, of one of the deities or something. And that, that gets, you know, that gets uh, readers, you know, on the academic side and also people in the community, you know, stirred up and they're ready to argue about that. You know, uh, but there are people writing wonderful things about Indian philosophy, about epistemology, about consciousness. And yeah, that doesn't, that's not flashy, right? It doesn't, it's not clickbait, but there's a lot of it out there. There are really good scholarship and really wonderful scholars in my field. I know you've done a good deal of work with pop culture and Hinduism and Hindu themes that work their way into movies. One of the ones that comes up all the time is Star Wars and the influence, the Hindu themes that one can see in that. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So it's interesting, uh, as I was doing my research for my, for my Hinduism in America book, I've got a chapter on, on Hinduism and popular culture in the West. Uh, George Lucas actually uh, is a, a TM practitioner. Uh, I did not realize that when I started. I, did, I didn't know that either. I mean, yeah. I, one thinks of celebrity practitioners of TM and David Lynch obviously comes to mind. I did not know about that, about George Lucas. He, he uh, at least has practiced it. I don't know how ongoing that is. And uh, he once commented that one of the inspirations for the figure of Yoda was actually the Maharishi, Maharishi Mahashyogi. Um, and uh, I know of a couple other inspirations as well. There was a Tibetan Buddhist monk whose face actually became the basis for Yoda's face. Um, and uh, uh, Varun Soni, uh, who's a Hindu chaplain, uh, made me aware of that because he knows that particular monk, in fact, uh, who's out in California. And then uh, Joseph Campbell. Uh, uh, Joseph, um, George Lucas referred to Joseph Campbell. He called him Myoda uh, because Joseph Campbell, I think, is really the big link between Lucas and Hindu traditions because Campbell was, besides being a scholar of comparative religion and mythologies and so on, he was an earnest student of Vedanta. And in fact, uh, he's credited by Swami Nikyavananda with helping him translate the Katamrita that's translated as the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. And so Campbell was really steeped in Vedanta, so much so that Prabhajika Vajrapana has said that you cannot, if you read Campbell, you cannot escape Ramakrishna, right? There's, there's Vedanta there uh, in Campbell's work. Well, George Lucas read Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces when he was back in film school, and it was part of what inspired him to create an American myth, a great American story that would capture some of the great themes that you find in stories from around the world, including from, from India. And if you look at Star Wars, the Vedanta has kind of seeped in via Joseph Campbell and so it's, it's full of concepts like the force, for example. So an all-pervading energy field that is sort of part and parcel of everything that exists. This is very similar to the concept of Brahman. It's also similar to the concept of Shakti that you find in the tantric traditions because it's, it's a force. It's a power, right? Shakti means power. So it's, it's an energy that uh, can flow through individuals and change things in the world. It's a creative power. And it has, it's said to have a, a positive side and a dark side. Now, this, I think, gets a little more Western because you have the sort of, you know, good versus evil dynamic. But uh, you could say that the dark side is the Shakti we have within us that we manifest when we're in a dark place, right? When the mind is full of anger, for example, you know, when it dwells in those places, that energy still manifests, but it manifests in negative ways. And then when the mind is calm and, you know, the figure of Yoda, right, he's, he's sort of the classic guru figure of Star Wars. He teaches this to Luke Skywalker, you know, the force will flow when your mind is calm. You have the Jedi, right, these, these sort of these great warriors who, again, kind of like Gandhi, their ideal is nonviolence, but they've got their lightsabers if they need them. And they act as the servants of, of the force. The names that you find in Star Wars, I keep finding more and more Indic names. I have to keep adding them to my presentations that I give on this theme. Yoda himself, the name Yoda comes from Yodha, which is warrior, right? Comes from Yudha, from Yud, from war in, in Sanskrit. Uh, there is a very popular character, not in the films, but in the uh, TV series, The Clone Wars, 
uh, Ashoka, and that name is basically Ashoka, right? The, the, the great uh, Buddhist king from India. You um, find more and more of these. There's a series called Star Wars Rebels, and it's set mostly on a planet called Lothal. Well, Lothal is the location of one of the ancient Indus <laughs> cities uh, that's been discovered. So it's, uh, you know, and there's even a Jedi named Shakti after Shakti. So um, she uh, is seen also in the Clone Wars series. And, and, and I get to watch all these and say that I'm doing research because this is really. <laughs> so have you seen the Disney Plus series, Star Wars series? Oh, the Mandalorian. Yeah. yeah. Do, do the themes carry through? They do. They do carry through very well. And in fact, Ahsoka makes an appearance in there, played by an actual actress. Um, and she's uh, played by Rosario Dawson, who, who does a great job. And um, the Mandalorian himself is played by uh, um, Pedro Pascal, uh, who's also in Game of Thrones, which is another favorite series of mine. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a really good series. The themes are not, I think, quite as prominent in this particular series. Uh, it's more uh, centering on the idea that after the Empire falls, it's after the return of the Jedi, uh, there's sort of a period of lawlessness before the New Republic gets its footing. So it very much has the feel of a Western in space. And that was another of George Lucas's big influences, Western you know, cowboy films. So there's a lot of outlaw kind of things going on. But the centerpiece is the Mandalorian, who's this warrior. He's a bounty hunter. He's a very hardened figure. He, uh, he's given an assignment to deliver this child to the empire, you know, what's left of the empire. And uh, it's this adorable little being who's from the same species as Yoda. And fans started calling him Baby Yoda, right? Everyone now calls him. Now we actually know his real name, right? His, his name's actually Grogu, but everyone calls him Baby Yoda. And uh, he has incredible force powers, right? And you see that demonstrated in the show a few times. But he's a baby, so he doesn't yet know really how to use them. So um, the Mandalorian is kind of basically trying to protect him and, you know, take him from place to place. And I wonder how they're going to be able to keep up the themes over how many spinoffs they're proposing. I don't know. I, and, you know, I had a really interesting experience this semester, which I'll mention. Um, I, so I have a course that I actually teach for first year students at our college. And uh, a bunch of us teach these courses. They're called first year seminars. So they're there to help the student assimilate to college and uh the they have to learn how to you know give a presentation do a research paper and so on and the topic can be really just about anything uh it should be something fun and engaging so i've picked up this theme of star wars and asian philosophy so i talk about hinduism buddhism and taoism and all of these in connection with star wars and a lot of these students you know i grew up with the original films uh these students weren't born yet then and they've now really their introduction to Star Wars was what we're calling the sequels, right? So the movies called The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and, and Rise of Skywalker, which have been, really been heavily bashed by a lot of Star Wars fans who didn't like them. I like them, but, you know, it's like that the thing you hear about the big lie, right? You hear something negative over and over again. And so whenever I talk about those movies, even though I like them, I feel like I have to sort of preface that with some kind of apology, right? Mm -hmm. These students love those movies. And like for them, those are the Star Wars movies. In some of their papers and presentations in the semester that just passed, uh, they've given me a new appreciation for those films. And some of the Hindu themes are actually more apparent in these recent movies than in the uh, than even in the earlier ones. Hmm, like, like what? I, I've seen them, but I haven't looked at it with that eye specifically. Well, okay, I'll just give you one example. Uh, one criticism that a lot of fans gave of these films is that, uh, oh, it's just recycling the original movies, right? The Force Awakens especially was seen as like just a, almost like a remake of the original. Lucas apparently intended that deliberately to, one of the things he wanted to show as these movies unfolded, and this is one of the instructions he gave to J.J. Abrams and to Disney, was that the same things were going to happen again and again with, because that's how that Sansara, right? That's how history works, right? We go through cycles. And so he wanted to show that by having different characters experience basically the same scenarios over and over again. So that's actually, that was actually not a, not a bug. It was a feature <laughs> of the, of the force awakens. And then, then you look at it, then you look at it and go, wow, because in one of my, in a sort of an earlier phase of this sort of, series of presentations I've been giving on Star Wars. 
you know, I talked about how, you know, with the return of the Jedi at the end, you know, the emperor is thrown down a, down a shaft and Darth Vader's redeemed. And so in some ways it has more of a Christian feel at the end because you have this kind of, you know, final redemption and, you know, good defeats evil and we're all done with the force awakens. You see, nope, the whole cycle starts all over again and it just keeps going as long as you're in time and history. That's how it is. That's that's what time and history are. It's sort of the the our ongoing mistakes as we struggle under uh, spiritual uh, ignorance uh, under avidya. So those films illustrate that very well, and uh, also uh, they they really dig deeply into the idea that there is light, there is goodness in all beings, because you have this character of Kylo Ren, who in many ways is the is the opposite of. Uh, of Anakin Skywalker, who falls and becomes Darth Vader. Right? Anakin struggles with the darkness within himself. Kylo Ren, for various reasons, embraces the darkness early on. Now he's struggling with the light within himself, and the light's trying to get out. And it finally does in the third film uh, of, of the new sequel. So yeah, one of my students in particular wrote a really good character study of Kylo Ren and is a, an, a, an example of the, the light within us gradually manifesting. Um, through the, the choices we make through karma and so on. So I, I yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the things I want to do during the holidays is uh, rewatch those, those films with, with that new insight in mind. Before you mentioned stereotypes about Hindus, if there are one or two things that you wish the general American public knew about Hinduism, what would it be? For one thing, the topic that seems to really fascinate a lot of Americans. And I find this in, in my students a lot is caste. And yet it is profoundly misunderstood. Now, when I say it's profoundly misunderstood, that's not to say that there aren't problems with with it. And there have been Hindu reformers for centuries who have said there are problems with it. We've already talked about Gandhi. Swami Vivekananda was quite brutal in his assessment of caste prejudice. Uh, He referred to it as don't touchism. And he referred, he said it was a a mental disease. I mean, he was really... uh, very harsh on casteism, caste prejudice, which is correct. I mean, that that is something that needs to be rejected. Uh, But the phenomenon itself is not well understood. It's not that everyone has this sort of very clear rank in society and they go around with a badge on their head saying, you know, I'm I'm a kshatriya. I mean, that's kind of the image that, that, that students get out of high school textbooks. It's it's varied across India, which particular jati or community is part of which varna that varies from region to region where people stand in the hierarchy. Uh, And the very fact of the hierarchy, uh, what does it mean to say there's a hierarchy? It's not class. Class is an economic term. And there are Brahmins who are dirt poor and there are Dalits who are very wealthy. Uh, So it's not class. Um, It's. It's a type of status, and it exists in the minds of the people for whom it exists. Right? If if uh, if people look at one another in terms of this status, that's going to create a kind of social reality. And uh, I don't want to compare it too much to race because I think there are problems with that. But there are parallels because you could say that uh, there's the concept that someone's inherent worth is in some way based on just who they are, right? That, that it's, uh, you know, something they've received from their parents. But what I would want people to know is that the core teachings of Vedanta, the philosophies of Hinduism, if you go back to the Vedas, back to the Upanishads, it teaches the inherent divinity and dignity of all, not just all human beings, really all living beings. And the idea that someone should be shunned because of they're because of who they are, right? Or that someone should be treated as in a lesser way because of who they are just isn't reflective of the, well, I guess what I would call the higher teachings of, of, of Hinduism. There's a lot of social practice that has kind of accumulated through the centuries and kind of glommed on to the tradition. And that itself is very interesting. And because, like I said, there, there are regional variations and there are ways it's been inverted and changed at different times. Uh, so all of that is, is very important and, and, and merits study and, and discussion. Uh, but people make a mistake when they think that Hinduism essentially equals caste, right? When they do that, uh, it, it essentially negates 
a whole lot of Hindu philosophy, Hindu teaching, and the scripture itself. You know, a lot of what's in the Shruti is about the divinity of all beings. And uh, there, there are even passages which refute the concept of birth status, right? So uh, a very famous story in the Chandogya Upanishad of Satyakama, whose uh, mother is a servant. Uh, he doesn't even know who his father is, but he becomes a Brahmin because he's very wise and he's very learned and, and he advances uh, knowledge. And so uh, this is uh, a very, very complicated system. And, and I'm, uh, I think our educational system in the U.S. has done a disservice to people in India, but also to, to our own students by portraying this very simplistic kind of, of system. And uh, I, I would also like to, in regard to that, point out that you know, there are a lot of Hindus that would like to stand in solidarity with uh, I think with with the Dalits and with the people who are having struggles with casteism, uh, and that is a complicated issue because, in some ways, again, you can see sort of echoes of of the race issue in in America because you have you know white people who want to be allies but maybe just don't know how to do it because they you know for whatever reason the the way the whole system is structured, uh, people have a hard time articulating what they're trying to you know they're trying to articulate some kind of compassion something good. But uh, it doesn't come across, or it even comes across as paternalistic. So, sure. I, I, one, one, one thing I've seen in regard to that point, and I won't use the organization's names just because it's their business. But I, what I've seen and know has happened is that there have been Hindu organizations, this isn't talking about HAF, who have tried to do anti caste, anti casteism, I should say, work. And they've been shunned by. Dalit activists, because some of these activists say there is no solution with Hindus involved. Right. And, and I, and I just always come back to when I hear stuff like that, that it's just, you couldn't get away saying that with any other tradition. You know, it's just, to me, that is such an extremist view that here are people from within a tradition saying, let's reform the tradition. Let's look at the darker parts of this, right. darker practices that have been associated with it. We'll leave aside whether they are theological or social. Right. And, well, you can't be part of the discussion anymore. You know, it's, it, we can't have a solution unless you don't exist. You can't say that, but that uh, about other religions, but you can say that about Hinduism sometimes on this issue. That's right. That's right. Because a lot of people, and not just in the Western world, but, you know, in India too, simply identify Hinduism with caste. And if Hinduism is identical with caste, and if caste is the problem by the commutative property, right, uh, then Hinduism is the problem. And uh, uh, then you, yeah, you just can't have a productive discussion. Uh, I find this a very hard nut to crack because part of me says, you know, when someone has been traumatized by prejudice and marginalization, exclusion, violence, you know, horrible things that have happened to Dalit people. And still go uh, on. It still, it yeah, still happens. It, it still goes on. Uh, I just want to, to stand back and respect that and let them speak. And let, I mean, even that way of phrasing it is not correct. It's not my power to let anyone speak. Just listen and, and acknowledge and, and, and grieve, right? Because this is, you know, this is our fellow human beings. Uh, at the same time, as someone who does identify with, with the Hindu tradition and, and does not identify with casteism, I do want to articulate it in ways that, you know, like you said, sort of, you know, if, whether you want to call it reform or, uh, you know, uh, just a new way of, of, of looking at our sources and what they mean, I think that work should still go on. Um, what we, what I think many of our Dalit uh, friends have told us is that, uh, we can't then expect some sort of pat on the back, right? That that we're not doing this type of reform because we think it can heal or help uh, them. We hope it can, but we're doing it to to improve ourselves, right? We don't want to commit those atrocities, right? We don't want to enable them through some kind of ideological construct that you know issues in that. So we're going to work to be better because we. We need to, because that's that's our that's our dharma, right? That's what we need to do. I think that way of approaching it is better. Otherwise, it does come across as paternalistic. Or I've seen this kind of conversation happen as well, and I see it again with the with the white and black issues in the U.S. You know, oh, I've purged this from my life, so everything's okay. Well, 
not necessarily. And in fact, very often we think we have, and then we haven't really. You know, and it it becomes an even more awkward discussion if 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 you're someone like you and me who came to the tradition. I mean, I didn't grow up with casteist attitudes because I just, I didn't know what caste was. Right, I grew up in Missouri, uh, and I I didn't meet anyone from India until I was you know in my late teens, and so I just didn't even have the concept until I you know read about it somewhere. We want to we're kind of in a double bind because we want to we want the tradition to be at its best. And to be purified of any elements that might be supportive of prejudice or bias or violence or harm to others. Uh, at the same time, we want to tread carefully because we may be seen by many people in, you know, who grew up in the Hindu tradition as interlopers, newcomers, or, or even neo-colonialists, right, at the worst, right? We, our motives might be suspect. Oh, here come the white people again trying to reform Hinduism. So... This is the most I've ever said about this particular topic, just because uh, I don't want to step on any of those landmines. So I just I tend to avoid the topic uh, very often. <laughs> well, you went where you certainly I, went there right now. I mean, I went with it. Yeah, because I've thought about it a lot. But uh, um, I don't want to I don't want to offend or harm anyone on any side of this very multifaceted and complex conversation. But I want to be the best person I can be. I want to be the best you know, sadhak I can be following Sri Ramakrishna. Uh, and uh, so for me, that means opposing casteism, opposing, you know, prejudice of any kind. Uh, though it doesn't mean turning around and then saying, okay, we have to jettison all of Hinduism, because that just doesn't make sense, in my opinion. It's not, but again, that's not my experience. If, so, if someone's only experience of Hinduism has been this kind of, you know, hate and prejudice, then I'm not, I mean, it, it stands to reason that that they would say that Hinduism is the problem. It's like you and I have come to it from seeing the positive sides of the tradition. So we're not thinking that we're thinking, well, just get rid of all the bad stuff and, you know, keep the good stuff and we'll be fine. And, uh, but it's actually very, very, very complicated. One final thing. What does your spiritual path look like? What does your practice look like? So I have a guru. Uh, in the Vedanta tradition, uh, we we don't have to keep our guru secret. My guru Swami Tyagananda from the Boston Ramakrishna Vedanta Society. Um, we do have a mantra that's secret. Uh, that's given to us by our guru when we get our diksha, our initiation. I took diksha from Swami Tyagananda in 2005. Uh, I don't know, like, because I'm talking to the general public, I'm using his name, but I would normally call him Guruji or Maharaj in the tradition. And uh, so I meditate uh, as he taught me twice a day. So morning and evening uh, meditation uh, on the mantra. And in terms of my spiritual path, in, in the Vedanta Society, we talk a lot about, and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with this, the idea of the four yogas, which Swami Vivekananda talked about a lot. So you have karma yoga, the path of seva and selfless service, bhakti yoga, the path of devotion, jnana yoga, the path of the intellect of discernment, uh, and Raja Yoga or Dhyana Yoga, which is meditation. And my spiritual life, I would say, incorporates all four of those uh, in different ways and to a different extent. Um, I would say my seva, my karma yoga, is this kind of work. I mean, what I do. Uh, I could have gone and I could have become a lawyer. I could have you know, gone into business or done something else. But I've decided to focus everything on uh, these traditions and spreading knowledge about them as best I can and bridging the gaps uh, across the cultures. And I see that as my, my Swadharma and that's the karma yoga part of what I do. Um, dhyana yoga meditation, of course we do daily. Um, dhyana yoga for me, I would say is really very, very central. And it's, it's very central for my guru as well. You know, we, we tend to uh, express ourselves not exclusively, but to a very big extent in terms of the Advaita Vedanta tradition, so non-dualism. So it's very much about seeing and discerning what is real and differentiating it from what is unreal, understanding that this environment, this body, this life, everything we perceive is, it's, it's not that it's completely unreal, but it is a, a penultimate reality. There, there is something far more profound underlying all of this. That is the infinite Brahman, the, the infinite Satchidananda. And Bhakti is part of it because 
part of practicing this path is, you know, you engage the whole person, which includes our emotions. So jnana by itself can sound very dry and abstract, but when you personify it, when you realize this is a relationship that we have now, ultimately, Advaita Vedanta tells us it's, it's a relationship with our own self. But until we achieve that full realization, it's a relationship between us and God, right? Between us and that infinite reality. And working, I would say, really every moment uh, to use each moment to discern wisdom and to really become a kind of transparent vessel for divinity to, to flow into, into the world and into reality. So, so my spiritual life is tied to my meditation practice, my work, and uh, this philosophy, which I really keep the focus of my attention on uh, all the time. And then the, the devotional aspect, which sort of helps propel that forward. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. 